other. And let's turn in our Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Sunday morning we're studying the book of 1 Corinthians, a series entitled Christian Living in a Pagan World. That's the world we live in. It's always been the world, but it's no different today. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, uh, just get the attention of the men that are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. They'll get a Bible into your hands, and then you can read along as well as hear the Word today. And then, boy, if you don't own a Bible, we want you to own a Bible and to read it and make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you. Four verses this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in the race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. And therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. Lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become a castaway. Or better put in the New King James, disqualified. Strong words from the Apostle Paul. Let's pray together and we'll tear into it. Thank you, Lord, for this passage. We thank you for your desire to speak to us by your Holy Spirit. Thank you that you are a masterful potter. And we submit ourselves to you this morning as your clay. And we ask that you would continue to use your word, the water of your Holy Spirit, Lord, and just to fashion us further and further into the image of Christ today. Speak to us very personally, we ask, through your eternal word. We ask for that work of your spirit, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This passage from 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is continuing to deal with this subject uh, known as Christian liberties, and it's a subject that he began to talk about in chapter 8, and in chapter 8 he made the point that when it comes to the expression of our Christian liberties, that love is always to guide the expression of our liberties, not our knowledge. And to say with the Apostle Paul, as he says in chapter 8, verse 13, Therefore, if food makes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, lest I make my brother to stumble. And to not only be able to say that with the Apostle Paul, but to really mean it. Then he goes into chapter 9, and in the first half of the chapter, he instructed the Christians in the church at Corinth, and us as well, There were always to forego any liberty or Christian right that we have that would harm the effectiveness or the fruitfulness of God's plan for our life, of our ministries. 
And then in the latter part of this same chapter, verses 19 to 23, he tells us that we should always forsake any liberty or right as necessary for the sake of the gospel. That there shouldn't be any right or any liberty that we wouldn't lay down in an instant for the salvation of a single soul in this world. And now, as he comes to the end of this chapter, he realizes that all of this requires real spiritual discipline. And so in these closing verses of chapter 9, the Apostle Paul illustrates the necessity of exercising discipline and self-denial in order to uh, be great at anything in life. And he tells, he speaks to the church at Corinth about this from an area in life that they were all very familiar with, and that is from uh, the realm of athletics and athletic competition. Uh, Corinth was the site of the Isthmus Games that occurred every two years, In the city of Corinth in Greece, Greece was a country that was sport-crazed. If they'd have had television, all that would have been on the television, except for idle channels, well, so it's really just like today, really. But they would have had the ESPN, ESPNU, ESPN2, ESPN News, Fox News, see, you know, all of these... Uh, sports channels. They were fanatics about it. And they loved their sports. And in fact, the Isthmian Games were only second to the Olympics in terms of stature in the ancient world. And again, these Olympics occurred every two years right there in Corinth. And it's very, very likely that Paul, when he spent his 18 months ministering in the church at Corinth and establishing that church, he did so in a period of uh, 50 A.D. to 52 A.D., the Isthmus Games were held in the summer and spring of A.D. 51, and so he was probably there at the time in which these games were played, and he saw the impact that it had upon uh, the whole city, upon the whole realm. He realized these are uh, sports fanatics, and so he deliberately illustrates this point concerning Christian liberty, not from the vantage point of a soldier, he commonly did that, or from the vantage point of a farmer, he commonly did that, but he chooses this realm of athletics, which um, was something that uh, he did again regularly in his writings. And the point that he's desiring to make to these Christians in Corinth, and he wants to make it to us as well, is this. He's saying, do you want to spend the rest of your Christian life demanding your own rights, experiencing your own liberties, or do you want to make a difference for God and His kingdom in this world? A person can waste their life, their Christian life, almost as effectively in living supremely for their liberties, as to live for sin. And if our answer to Paul's questions here of do we want to spend our entire Christian life living for our own rights and liberties or to make a difference for God and his kingdom, if we answer no to the first question and yes to the second, then in this passage he tells us exactly how to do it.
So he likens the Christian life to a race. And what is the Christian race? It speaks of fulfilling God's plan for our lives, which includes being obedient to him and our personal relationship with him, but it also speaks about being faithful in our Christian service to him. He tells us in verse 24, and in fact, he does more than tell us there. He calls on us, every single Christian, he calls on us to run to win. And then in doing so, he also, in this passage, instructs us concerning the characteristics that are required of someone whose intent upon running to win is a Christian. And the first thing that he tells us in verse 25 is that it demands our very best effort, of verse 24. It demands and it deserves our very best effort. We're to make a strenuous effort in our attempt to achieve it. He says again in verse 24, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And so he's saying, you know, go for the gold is how we would put it in our culture in this race. He says, go for the gold in this Christian life, nothing less. Give it everything that you've got because we've only got one shot at it and we will have to live with the result of it for a very, very long time. When I was in uh, junior high school and then early in uh, senior high school, my sport of choice at that time uh, was tennis, and I became adequate at tennis. I mean, I made the tennis teams in junior high and, and high school and lettered in, in the sport. But then in my sophomore year of high school, I picked up a basketball, and it was love at first sight. Love at first dribble. And I don't know why... Um, what happened, or maybe it was just a friend or something that I began to hang around, but I picked up that ball and just fell in love with that game. And I played uh, junior varsity and varsity in high school, and then later I played at Napa Junior College. And uh, during that time, all the period in high school and junior college, I was exposed to five different coaches and only two of those five coaches tried to develop within us as a team that sense that when we took the floor for a game, that we didn't come merely to play and see what would happen. We stepped out on that floor to win that game. There's something. Only two out of five even made an attempt to instill that level of excellence in our life. Unfortunately, one of those two was only around for uh, less than a month, and he was gone. But that drive within him, that desire for the best for us, really did uh, stick with me. And uh, so that one coach was gone in a very short period of time. And so in all those years, I only had one coach who instilled in us the idea Again, that we didn't go out on that floor simply to play and see what would happen. We came out there to win. And then more than that, that he equipped us physically and mentally uh, to do exactly 
that. And so for most of those years that I played basketball, we played as a team. We played to play and not to win. Certain individuals on the team played to win, but that wasn't the attitude of the teams as a whole. And as a result of that, I look back on that chapter in my life with some regret. I'm not emotionally crippled by it. I loved the experience. Those were great years. I got to all league in college twice and got to be captain of the team, which was an incredible honor. It was a fabulous experience. But I learned from that experience that we had a very short season in life to do something great and to be something great. And that if that season or that window was wasted, you'd never get a chance to do it ever again. And God took that and he worked it together for good in my life and that I've been able to take that life lesson from athletics and bring it into my Christian life, just as Paul does here, and to realize that this season, this season on earth that we call life, this opportunity to walk with God by faith and to serve Him 100% is a very, very short season. And it's an opportunity that will close one day. We will never have an opportunity to do it again in the same way ever again. And so from that basketball experience, there's something within me that did something in me that says, in this, I want to give it my all. I want to go for the gold in this. I don't want to look back at the end of my life with any regret. And it's that regret, not concerning basketball, but concerning life and ministry, that the Apostle Paul is endeavoring to steer these Corinthian Christians away from. When Paul would watch those athletes compete and train for the games, the Isthmian games, I mean, you see those bulging muscles and the bulging veins and the sweat and the hard work and the body so well-defined and all of the sacrifice. And what filled his mind wasn't, I want to run the mile myself. I want to throw the shot put myself. That's not how it worked for Paul. When Paul saw that in those athletes, he said, I want to live my Christian life that way. There's something that happens the longer we walk with the Lord. And everything becomes a sermon. You watch it. You watch the Olympics. You watch the Pan American Games. You watch whatever it is and you see if your background is athletics and you watch that and you see the excellence and immediately by the Spirit of God you turn it back toward your Christian life and, and the Holy Spirit's got something to say to us about that. Really, in everything in life that we see, the Spirit's faithful to speak that way. And that's what Paul saw when he saw all of them. I want to walk with God the way that those people uh, give themselves related to their athletic endeavors. Many Christians are just happy to be saved. That's it. I'm going to give you a mild romp through my childhood apparently today because all of this takes me back to my junior high school physical education classes. They'd have the 
coaches would come out. They'd line all of us up. We'd be on a number here, 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 here. They'd do the roll and everything. And then they'd announce to all of us that we're going to start to learn cross-country. So they set up this course that we would run all around the athletic fields. They wanted a long-distance run, not a sprint. It would end with a lap around the track, and then we'd come to the end. And so they'd get us out there and... And everybody would start together. And there'd always be those that gave it no effort at all. They walked the entire distance. I mean, they never even tried, never broke a sweat at all. And even people who were um, maybe a little bit overweight or they weren't necessarily athletic, uh, even those folks, it wasn't their cup of tea. But they would try. But here was this other group that wouldn't even try. And they made it uh, the focus of their physical education lives to give as little effort uh, in the face of uh, pain or sacrifice that they could. Zero effort. I mean, they just didn't care at all. There's no shame, no peer pressure, <laughs> you know, no conviction of wrongdoing, nothing. They just found a bunch of people that were like-minded, and uh, they all walked in a big pack in the back, and they were comforting one another by their large numbers. This has spiritual applications to Christians that I won't exhaust you with. You can fill in the blanks yourself. But for a Christian to do that, spiritually speaking, is to live a life that they will one day regret and deeply regret. And so Paul tells us that we're to give this Christian life our very best effort. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, chapter 3. Pastor David taught on this a few weeks ago. But he said, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I don't count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He wrote that 30 years after his salvation. Three decades after being born again. He wrote that 25 years after beginning uh, his Christian service. And after all of that time, his heart and his mind and his vocabulary are still filled with words like pressing on and reaching forward. Twenty-five years of ministry that involved three missionary journeys, for the most part on foot, some by sea, And these missionary journeys covered years at a time. And God used him to plant churches all across Europe. He planted churches in Philippi, in Berea, in Thessalonica, in Corinth. And he evangelized a city by the name of Ephesus and established a church there that was so strong it became a church-planting church to the rest of that part of the world. He experienced imprisonment in Rome. But even under those circumstances, he preached to all the guards that he had contact with. And people were being saved not only within the prison, but all the way up into the house of, of the ruler of, of Rome. 
of the Caesar into his household. He had been instrumental in launching a great number of young men into the ministry at a time where it put a young man's life in tremendous danger. It would mean death. The persecution was so great. But they saw something so majestic and so beautiful in Paul's life, something that they wanted so much that they came one after another and said, whatever the risk might be, I want the life that you live. And so Timothy and Titus and Luke and Silas and Sopater and Aristarchus and Segundus and Gaius and Tychicus and Trophimus, just to name a few. He worked unbelievable miracles in the healing of the sick and the lame and the casting out of demons. And he suffered enormous hardship, beaten and scourged and stoned and shipwrecked. And he knew what it was to serve the Lord in spite of physical exhaustion and sleeplessness and hunger and thirst and cold and nakedness. And this is the man who is still passionately calling on the church at Corinth and calling on us to give this life our all, our very best effort, knowing that there'll be no regrets at the end of that kind of a life for having done so. He certainly couldn't find any because at the end of his life he declared, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure is at hand. I know it. I fought a good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. I left everything on the court. I left everything on the track. I left everything on the field. And finally there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul tells us that the second thing that's required in order to run to win is that it requires focus, verse 25, a particular mental focus, a particular mindset. And throughout the course of our race, we are to set our minds upon the reward, he tells us, that awaits us at the end of of the race. Now, when an athlete is training for something, there's unbelievable sacrifice involved, unbelievable hardship, and you are pushing yourself through pain. You are pushing yourself to a place that you never thought that you were physically capable of. All of that's involved in getting ready for. Uh, that something that the athlete is training for. Just hours and days and weeks and months and sometimes years of sacrifice. There's literal blood, sweat, and tears. You think, what gets them through? What keeps them going? And through it all, they never lose sight of their goal. Paul observed that concerning athletes. They never lost sight of their goal, not the ones that excelled. Now, in the Isthmian Games, the reward for having won those games was to stand before this vast crowd of people on a victor's stand and then to have a pine wreath placed on your head. 
And everything was done for that moment. And then, to fondly remember that moment and that accomplishment for the rest of your life. And the application to us as Christians is that we too, we are to run our race with our mind filled with a reward that awaits us at the end of this race. And what is that reward? To one day look in the very eyes upon the very face of our Savior. I'm going to see Him face to face one day. And then to hear Him say to us, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. You've been faithful over a few things. Now I make you a ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord and to receive as a result the imperishable crown that Paul describes it there. That speaks of the eternal reward that goes with having run the race that well that way. And we do all that we do. We go through all that we go through. We endure all that we endure for that moment. And then to be able to bask in the glory of that moment. The glory of having heard those words from those lips for all of eternity. There'll be an afterglow upon our lives that will last forever and ever. Now when a long-distance runner goes out to run, and he or she settles into that kind of long run. They're going to push. They're in training. Very taxing. And you've got this very painful part so often between the start and the finish of, of their training run. Typically, that kind of an athlete, they'll set their eyes on some uh, object in the far distance the direction in which they're running. They put their fo- they, they've got to take their focus off of all that they're going through at the moment and the rebellion of their body at the moment against what it's being put through. And so they put their focus far off into the distance. That's the spot I'm going to focus on, and I'm going to get there in a very short period of time. The second thing that they'll do is they will set their minds on some something that is a source of joy in their life. And uh, so I did a little bit of running when I was younger and uh, long-distance running, and I liked it. Those endorphins are wonderful. (laughs) Mm, Yummy. (laughs) But it was was fun. You You just fall into that zone, and you just keep on going. But you got to think about something. You don't want to think about what's cramping up right now. You don't want to think about all these other things. And so you set your mind on something that's pleasurable. You relive a trip to Hawaii. You retrace your steps maybe on a trip to Israel. You start to work your way through these kind of things that are a pleasure in your life. A lot of times you'll do something like that and you'll spend the whole time thinking about what you're going to eat and drink when you get done with, uh, with the race. 
But you've got to discipline your thinking away from all of the negatives. Uh, and certainly nobody runs and uh, that is in training for something great and thinks about every problem in their life. You can exercise and run and work through those problems, but it won't be effective training for you because the toll that that takes upon your body while you're demanding of it so physically, it's just something that kind of world-class athletes don't do or serious, even serious athletes don't do. They set their minds on things that are positive, things that are a blessing and a joy uh, to them. And, and, uh, and it affects their performance in a positive way. And so too, so too related to our spiritual race, we're going to set our focus on something in this life and there's no more encouraging place to set our focus than on that future face-to-face with Jesus. And all of this world and all of its discouragement and all of its weariness, just like a physical race, all of it, all of it uh, in a physical race, all of it is immediately forgotten the moment we cross the finish line. And when we cross that finish line and enter into heaven, all of this will be forgotten. And it's amazing how quickly uh, all of it is forget, forgotten once you cross the finish line or, and it's replaced with a satisfaction of the accomplishment and then the, the joy of enjoying those blessings for all of eternity. And, God, and Paul wants everyone to experience that. So this is what he's talking about. And, you know, you can lose all of that, not just to a life of sin, but to a life of liberty, just experiencing all of my Christian liberties to the neglect of God's call and purposes for my life. I use it as an illustration because it makes it so well. They say the average American in the United States of America watches uh, almost eight hours of television a day, so seven hours of television a day. That's a staggering amount of time. So you work that out over uh, your Christian lifetime if, if you're... If you're holding up the average, hopefully you're not. But, I mean, can you watch eight hours of television a day as a Christian and still fulfill his calling and hear the well done? I don't know that that can happen. So it's not just sin. Paul, the the application of this passage is very much when he gets to the end, he talks about becoming a castaway. Absolutely, sin is a massive application here. But that's not the point he's dealing with. He's dealing with liberties in Christians' life, our lives, so that we don't miss being able to experience that great future that is at the end of a well-run life. Number three, he tells us in verse 25 that running to win requires temperance. It requires self-control and abstinence. This is the last time you heard those words in our culture. If you go to the... Sometimes I'm in an airport and you go over and they've got all the top ten fiction, nonfiction. You look at what, okay, what's the nation reading right now and all. Um, you never see something like abstinence, <laughs> the way to a fruitful life, you know, self-control. You know, that's the one self-realm that people don't get into our culture. Everything else, every other bit of self is explored, but not self-control or self-denial. But it does require temperance. It requires strictness in our training. 
And it requires saying no to anything that would keep me from giving my best effort, keep me from my goal of winning. Athletes do this in every area of their life. Every area of their life, their diet, their sleep, their use of time, uh, their friendships, their associations, everything. An athlete has a perfect right to eat lousy. Just stuff themselves with In-N-Out burgers three times a day. I'm not putting down In-N-Out burgers. I love them. But not if you're training for the Olympics. So they're careful. They, they have a complete liberty to eat a lousy diet, to try and get by on six hours of sleep a night or spending several hours a day watching television or playing video games, but they willingly give up all of those liberties in order to accomplish something greater through their lives. Once there was a young track star who asked his coach if he could smoke and run. His coach said, sure, you can smoke and run. You just can't smoke and win. There's one thing to run to run, and it's an entirely different thing to run to win. And running to win requires temperance, even saying no to liberties for the sake of accomplishing this greater plan that God has for our lives, which is the point that is, is uh, Paul is trying to get through to these Corinthian Christians. I'll tell you, anywhere you see and look in life and you see excellence, and isn't it wonderful to see excellence in life? It's one of the things I love about Disneyland. I think the second time I ever went to Disneyland, I went with my wife. I loved all the rides and everything, but I just couldn't believe that I couldn't find a piece of litter anywhere, much less graffiti. Not a piece. I couldn't find a Chipping paint. I couldn't find one flaw in the place. Excellence. Beautiful. But anywhere you see excellence in life, it's because somebody chose to say no to some lesser thing in their life in order to accomplish excellence in their life in some greater area or some greater thing. And the same thing is true of Christians and Christian service. We cannot live like everyone else and excel in our Christian lives or in our Christian service. And excellence occurs when doing something great with God becomes more important to us than our liberties. And no Christian will ever finish the race that God has called them to who spends all of their life demanding their rights and their liberties. Paul didn't. He wrote to the churches in Galatia and he said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me and the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And in all of this, he's just being exactly like his Savior. Jesus in John chapter 4 spoke to the disciples and he said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Communicating to the disciples what sustains me, what feeds me in life is not physical food, but to accomplish the Father's will for my life and to finish the work that he has called me 
too. And Paul understood that. And he wants every Christian to understand it as well. Number four, running to win requires certainty, verse 26. He said, therefore, I run thus not with uncertainty. It requires um, focus. It requires being intentional. That's kind of a um, hot phrase right now. I generally try to steer away from things that are kind of hip and happening at the moment. Um, This is the personal version I have, except in these shirts that I wear week in and week out. But it's so good of a phrase, you just can't escape it. The need to be intentional in areas in our life. Paul didn't serve the Lord aimlessly or without focus or unintentionally. And the picture that he gives here of a, a runner running uh, with uncertainty is somebody who's just running aimlessly. They're just running around. They don't know what the start line is. They don't know what the end line is. They don't know what the course is. And so they're running just as much as everybody else, but they're not accomplishing anything. They're not in the race. They're not, no chance of uh, winning things. Unless you start at the start line, finish at the finish line, you can run all day if you want and you won't make any difference related to winning the race. Many Christians live completely aimless, goalless Christian lives. They drift everywhere instead of going somewhere. And their lives are just one big waste of time. Carnal Christians do this. Corinthian Christians do this. Christians who are concerned about exercising their liberties rather than fulfilling their part in the Great Commission, they do it as well. The purpose of the Christian life is not to see how many liberties I can engage in, how many I can indulge in, how few sacrifices or hardships I can endure and still get into heaven. Again, the purpose of our lives is to do God's will and finish the work that he has called us to. And if we're aiming at anything less than that as Christians, we are running aimlessly. Number five, verse 26, running to win requires actually jumping into the contest not daydreaming about it. <laughs> he said, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. So now he moves from running as an illustration from athletics to now he moves to boxing. And what he, de- uh, what he describes himself as not doing is shadow boxing as opposed to real boxing. I don't know if there's a young boy in the world that doesn't know something about shadow boxing. Standing in front of a mirror at some age and not knowing the first thing about how to fight, and yet you're going to try and learn a little something by boxing against yourself in the mirror. At least see how you would look while you took your beating. If you ever really got in a fight... Or if you move away from the mirror, you're kind of dancing around the bedroom or whatever, and you and Muhammad Ali dance like a butterfly, sting like a bee. 
What am I doing when I do that kind of a thing? I'm pretending. I'm dreaming. I'm fantasizing. I'm living in my head. If I really want to become a real boxer, I need to go down to the gym and learn how to get in a ring and learn how to box. And in the same way, it's possible for a Christian to spend our entire lives dreaming about serving the Lord, fantasizing about what that would feel like. And, boy, I wish I was that person, and I wish I could do uh, this thing, and I could really make a difference maybe someday and, and engaged in this whole world of activity and good intentions in our minds, but we never actually get into the fight. And good intentions aren't enough. They have to come, there has to come a time where we determine, I'm going to stop dreaming about uh, serving the Lord, and I'm going to actually step out and do it. I'm going to get engaged in the real battle, not some sham battle that's in my mind or in my bedroom. When I was a kid, our family would sometimes watch the Miss America contest, 13-inch black-and-white television, huddled around that. My stepdad would tell my sisters as we would watch this, and remember they would go like, it seemed like they would go for hours, like a 10-hour Miss America. But I don't know how long they are now, but it's like, like three hours back then or something. Just dragged. But So there's a lot of time to talk. And my stepdad would tell my sisters that they could be Miss Americas too. And everyone, all of us in the whole room, we would just get so excited at the prospect I'm going to be the brother of a Miss America. Come on. But becoming a Miss America involves a little more than just watching the pageant on the television and having a desire to be Miss America. To become Miss America, at some point, you have to start taking practical steps that can make that possible. And the same thing is true of the athlete. You can sit in front of a television all day long, have a great desire. It'll never amount to anything. Until one day I go outside and I start running or dribbling or hitting or kicking or whatever the sport might be and getting out into it. And that's a good word. If we're sitting here today as Christians and any of us as Christians and we've never taken that step, Paul's saying, listen, it is enough of the dreaming. Get into it. There's a real world. It's an exciting world. Take that step. Number six in verse 27, he says, Running to win requires discipline, the discipline to bring my body into subjection. So when Paul says, I discipline my body, he says, it literally means I give my body a black eye. Wow. That's some pretty hard work to bring your body into subjection. Nobody will ever excel in athletics who doesn't learn to bring their body into subjection to the higher goal of excelling in athletics. Anyone who's ever trained for some athletic endeavor knows what it is for their body to squawk or attempt to rebel against what uh, everybody else is putting it through. So you wake up in the morning... And your body tells you there is no way it's getting up out of bed that early, much less to go out into the cold in order to run 10 miles for nothing. And it begins just to scream bloody murder. 
Help me, help me, somebody in the apartment next door, somebody stop this person from taking me out into the cold. I mean, the body can really rebel against it. Help! Fifteen minutes later, you're running down the street to start your ten-mile run. Why? Because your goal is more important to you than the complaints of your body. So you brought your body into subjection. The same thing is true spiritually. There's a whole world of things that our flesh wants to squawk about and rebel against when we decide to give God our lives and to give our lives to his call and, and upon our lives to give God our very, very best. Our body wants it. My body is, my body is such a lazy bum on its own. The flesh, the old Adam nature, just wants to sit and watch television or video game. I'm not into video games at all. I'm glad to have victory over that. But the body, the flesh, I mean, it, just, it wants to watch television, play video games rather than study the Bible or to teach that home Bible study or to serve at the mission but we find ourselves in the car driving to the home fellowship that we're going to teach because that's more important to us than the complaints of our flesh. The Holy Spirit gives us the power to do that because it's a desire to live higher than what our flesh wants to do and gives us the power to do it. My flesh, your flesh, our old man, our old Adam nature, it's just a spiritual slug. There's a couch potato lazy slob. Got it? And so we can't afford to allow our body to control us. It needs to be brought into subjection. It is the servant to our spirit and not the other way around. Now, some people have this wrong idea concerning uh, Christian discipline Christian being disciplined at all. They confuse it with legalism. They look at Christians who are very disciplined in their life. It's a terrible thing to be a disciplined Christian today in the United States of America, Christianity, because everybody just looks as though they're just all, they're just legalists. That's how far we've fallen. They're the exception rather than the norm. And one of the reasons is, is there's been such a, a successful effort in recent years to equate all discipline with legalism. But they're two very different things because they operate out of two entirely different motivations. I'd like to read a very short passage to you from R. Kent Hughes's book, The Disciplines of a Godly Man. And he brings out the difference. And it might make things click for some of us and inoculate us against some of the nonsense that's going around today. He writes, First, In today's world, the church and the church disciplined Christian lives are the exception, not the rule. This goes for men, women, and the professional clergy. We cannot excuse ourselves by saying this has always been the case. It has not. As to why this is so, several common sense reasons could be tendered, such as poor teaching or individual sloth. But underlying much of the conscious rejection of spiritual discipline is the fear of legalism. 
For many, spiritual discipline means putting oneself back under the law with a series of draconian rules which no one can live up to and which spawn frustration and spiritual death. But nothing could be further from the truth if you understand what discipline and legalism are. The difference is one of motivation. Legalism is self-centered. Discipline is God-centered. The legalist says, I will do this to merit, gain merit with God. The disciplined heart says, I will do this thing because I love God and want to please him. There is an infinite difference between the motivation of legalism and discipline. And it is love that makes all of the difference a love for God, and it can make even, make even the greatest sacrifices a joy. Now let me close with this at the end of verse 27 because Paul closes this whole section out by floating out a warning to all of us, who, any of us who would choose to disregard all of his instruction here in, a, um, in an attempt or a desire to preserve their rights or their liberties above all. He said at the end of verse 27, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Now, talking about salvation here, in the old King James, it says, lest I should become a castaway. And so people think of that and they say, oh, Paul's talking about the fact that he can lose his salvation. It has nothing to do with salvation at all. He's talking completely about Christian service uh, here. And he's saying that concerning himself, that after having introduced so many people into the Christian life and Christian service as as a result, he never wanted to be guilty of failing to live that same life himself, to become disqualified because he had allowed liberties to dominate his life and his focus to such a degree that they would take him out of fully living for God's calling upon his life and as a result, no longer being usable by God. I like this about Paul. He treated the privilege of serving the Lord and staying in the battle. He treated that like gold. He didn't want anything to spoil that. Not sin, not even Christian liberties. Now let me say this. There's something wrong with a Christian. Something disqualifyingly wrong potentially with a Christian who number one will elevate the practice of their Christian liberties above the spiritual welfare of other Christians. There's something wrong with that kind of Christian who will cling to their rights to do these things, even if it stumbles a weaker brother, a brother for whom Christ died, as Paul said in verse 11 of chapter 8. There's something potentially disqualifyingly wrong with a Christian who refuses to forsake any liberty or any right necessary for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of winning a single person 
to Christ. Those are deep character flaws in a person's life where they exist that a person will not be able to keep compartmentalized indefinitely in their life. And sooner or later, their flesh will go from demanding its liberties and its rights to then demanding to practice sin. And because the brother has not learned to discipline himself for the sake of others, he will soon learn that he will not discipline himself even for the sake of his own ministry. And he will ultimately fall into disqualifying sin. We will be forced to learn discipline someplace or the other. And if we learn it for the higher motivation of love for other people, then by virtue of doing that, it protects us. That same discipline protects us from falling into sin in our own lives. This kind of a Christian who lives this way because he's carnal, but he's convinced himself that he's deeply spiritual and what he doesn't realize is that he is setting himself up for a great and a terrible fall. And I think, and this is very important, I think the jury is still out on this new selfish and self-centered fad of flaunting Christian liberties at whatever the cost to those within the body of Christ or outside of the body of Christ, no matter who might be hurt. And this is a fad today that is going on. But I tell you, I wouldn't be surprised to find that many of the leaders of this kind of expression one day find themselves falling into disqualifying sin. And that seems to be Paul's warning here, that when liberty becomes more important than the things that are really important, that's a mark of carnality. And that one day that carnality will go from hurting other people to then biting or disqualifying us. What goes around really does come around. And it's a word to the wise from the Apostle Paul. I don't like what I see. I see so many wonderful things within Christianity, so many wonderful Christians and wonderful churches and fabulous things going on. Sure, there's all the other stuff too. I don't know what the percentages are. But this whole phase, and I've walked with the Lord long enough to have been through many fads and phases and winds of doctrine to blow through the body of Christ in the 30-plus years that I've walked with him. And this is just another one. But it is dangerous, and it is to be avoided at all 
cross. It is a shallow, carnal, pathetic way to live in light of the potential of our lives and the hands of the Holy Spirit directed toward the things that will count for eternity. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you that your word is timeless. It's as applicational today as ever it was 2,000 years ago in the city of Corinth. We pray that you would use this passage to inoculate us and to protect us from throwing away the unbelievable eternal potential of each one of our lives as Christians for a life that is dominated and consumed by our liberties. Protect us from such small, petty, pathetic thinking. And use this passage, Lord, to bring us out into the majesty and the greatness, not only of you and of your heart, but that is found in knowing you and serving you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.